Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 203, Jorvik. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Right now, the members are listening to an episode about the Easter eggs and errors that we caught while we watched the first episode of BBC's The Last Kingdom. And there were a surprising number of rather subtle Easter eggs in that show. It's pretty good so far. And if you'd like to hear our take on it, you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Kate, Diane, and John for signing up already. I'd like to start today's episode with a poem. Not about my feelings or about a tough breakup, but a skaldic poem from the 12th century. It's called The Lay of Kraka, and it was probably recorded somewhere in Scotland. The reason why it's important is that it contains what's claimed to be Ragnar Lothbrok's death song. So, according to legend... This is the starting point for everything we've been talking about. And here is Dr. Wagoner's translation. We struck with our swords. Why should a warrior cower before the ranks when braving the blizzard of spear points? He who mourns his demise has never fed meat often to eagles in the edge game. It's hard to urge on weaklings. No coward takes courage from his craven heart. We struck with our swords. I say it's right for a lad to dare to dash at foemen as they draw swords together. Let Thane not shrink from Thane, that long was the warrior's way. Maid's darlings should be dauntless in the din of swords, always. We struck with our swords. It seems to me an ordeal that our fates we must follow. Few escape the Norn's craft. I didn't imagine Allah as the end of my life when I fed the blood falcons and forced keels through the water. We gave wolves worthy payment widely in Scotland's bays. We struck with our swords. My soul is glad, for I know that Baldur's father's benches for a banquet are made ready. We'll toss back toasts of ale from bent trees of the skulls. No warrior bewails his death in the wondrous house of Fjolnir. Not one word of weakness will I speak in Vidrier's hall. We struck with our swords. The sons of Aslog all would rouse the wrath of Hild here with their ruthless sword blades if they fathom fully how far I have traveled, how many serpents stab me with their poison. My sons' hearts will help them. They have their mother's lineage. We struck with our swords. Soon my life will have passed. Goin scars me sorely. Settles in my heart's hall. I wish the wand of Vidrier would wound Alla one day. My sons must feel great fury that their father is put to death. My daring swains won't suffer in silence when they hear this. We struck with our swords. I have stood in the ranks at fifty-one folk battles, foremost on the lance meet. Never did I dream that a different king could ever be found braver than me. I bloodied spears when young. Azir will ask us to feast. No anguish for my death. I desire my death now. The Desir call me home, whom Hurian hastens onward from his hall to take me. On the high bench, boldly, I'll drink beer with the Azir. Hope of life is lost now. Laughing shall I die. So, that's the legend. Now, 
let's talk about history. When we left off, the Danes had taken Effowich and apparently had a hard time with the name. But they did their best and started calling it Jorvik. The Norse sagas and skaldic poems like I just read to you would have you believe that this invasion was an epic revenge quest. That the great heathen army was seeking retribution for Ragnar Lothbrok getting killed by King Alla of Northumbria with apparently a pit of pet vipers. But was that the true story? Probably not. The sagas do give us an incredible drama. But now that we've been speaking about the socio-political situation for both the Anglo-Saxons and the Northmen, I think you can see how far-fetched the motivations within the sagas are. If Ivar and his brothers really did want vengeance, Kent wouldn't have been the logical target, and they wouldn't have had any reason to stay there for an entire winter, only to hit East Anglia later on and hang out there for another winter, and then finally go north and hit Effowich, and winter there once again. If the great heathen army really was a revenge story, that would have been overkill, and also ineffective because the supposed target, King Alla, was still walking free. So what would they have really accomplished there? This doesn't look like revenge. It looks like conquest. The great heathen army looks like an evolution in tactics with the Northmen gradually leaving their hit-and-run raids behind and looking towards longer-term goals. We have Vikinger armies on both sides of the channel acquiring massive Danegelds and discovering that they can even extort these payments while staying for the winter, and likely taking advantage of the temperate climate and, of course, the locals' resources. They've been discovering firsthand the wealth that can come from long-term occupation. They've seen the income that trading locations like Birka and Hedeby were generating. And they knew of other great trading cities like London and Dorestad. After all, they've been raiding them. And don't forget, this was a time of immense wealth in the West. We often imagine the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms as a collection of pit houses, where even the upper classes were kind of living in squalor. But that simply wasn't the case. You already know about the beauty of Anglo-Saxon craftsmanship from the Staffordshire Horde and numerous other finds. But that degree of finery continued into the Viking Age. If you want an example of it, Google the Alfred Jewel. The thing is an absolute knockout. There was a lot of money to be found, and a ton of it was concentrating in the West. And it seems that the Scandinavians were growing discontent with taking such a small portion of it in their raids. I mean, that was a high-risk endeavor that could get you killed. And in the end, the rewards would last you for, what, a year? And then you'd have to do it all over again. Surely, there had to be a better way. And with the occupation of Orkney and the Shetlands, we saw the first signs that the Northmen were starting to look for something a little more long-term. Then, they established the Kingdom of Dublin. Personally, I think that was probably the moment that Britain's future changed permanently. The goals and tenor of Vikinger campaigns changed dramatically after that. And it wasn't long before we had the great heathen army coming to Britain allegedly under the command of one of the kings of Dublin, King Ivor the Boneless. And if it was Ivor that was leading and organizing the Mikkel Hera, 
the Great Army, then it seems entirely possible that he was looking to replicate his prior success in Ireland and was looking to create a hegemonic empire for, ultimately, financial and political reasons. Consequently, as exciting as the story about Ivor doing all of this to get revenge for what King Alla of Northumbria did to his father is, I think it's about as likely as the story of the 2008 housing collapse being about a bunch of bankers issuing bad loans and then bundling them in such a way that they infected every area of finance, all as part of their diabolical plan to take down Freddie Mac because of how Freddie had their father killed by throwing him into a pit filled by Occupy Wall Street protesters. It's just stupid. Exciting, yeah. I'd totally watch that movie. But it's still stupid. What we're witnessing here is a social, political, and military event. But probably not a personal one. I mean, sure, it probably felt bloody personal to King's Alla Osbert Edmund, and it probably also felt personal to King Athelbert of Wessex before he died. But looking at the evidence, it doesn't appear to have been motivated by revenge or any sort of family drama. It looks like it was business. Even the target that they selected reflects the business-like attitude of this army. Jorvik was situated on two rivers, and that allows for easy access to trade, as well as a simple way for reinforcements to reach the city. Those same rivers would have also given the army two avenues of escape should things go poorly. And it gave them easy access to both the south and the north. They were right in the thick of it for both military endeavors and also for trade. It was a good spot for the Northmen to set up shop permanently. Furthermore, they were probably well acquainted with Jorvik. For many of them, this wouldn't have been the first time that they'd seen the city. It was a major urban center, and it was accessible via the waterways. And that made it exactly the sort of location that the Scandinavians would have included in their trade routes. And the Scandinavians were prolific traders. This location and its economic advantages were probably very familiar to many of the Scandinavians. Furthermore, it shared a lot in common with the other Vikinger stronghold in the British Isles, Dublin. Remember, Ivar the Boneless is reported to be one of the leaders of the Great Heathen Army, and he was also probably King Imer of Dublin. So, is it so hard to imagine that he might have been looking to establish another Dublin, only this time on the Isle of Britain? Looking at everything, I get the sense that Jorvik was probably carefully chosen, and thanks to the civil war that was raging, the city would have been extremely vulnerable and the Great Heathen Army were probably well aware of that when they left their cozy East Anglian position and headed north. And now, they're in their new home, and they've started calling it Jorvik. And so right there, right from the beginning, we're seeing evidence that they intend to stay. But don't forget that there still were two kings of Northumbria, and they would like their city back, thank you very much. And to further that goal... The kings of Northumbria did something relatively unheard of in that region. They started to work together. Probably starting as early as November of that same year, Alla and Osbert worked to put their differences aside and gather warriors. Now, given the size of the great heathen army, they would also need to call the Ferd. Their combined armies were probably just not large enough, so I suspect that they sought out every Eldermon they could find, 
and asked for the support of their personal war bands, and also their levies. Meaning that the eldermen would be asked to foot the bill of outfitting their farmers. And then, they would also be asked to risk losing them in battle. So this wasn't a small request. That would have been expensive. And if those farmers died, the eldermen would lose a key part of their revenue stream. Given the political situation in Northumbria, how much the kings were asking of their eldermen, and the fact that there were at least five powerful Northumbrian families who were all vying for power, I imagine that some of these talks were a bit fraught. I mean, if you were part of one of these rival royal families, would you really want to risk your life and the lives of your subjects just to put one of these jerks back on the throne? Sure, they were Northumbrian, so they had that going for them. But on the other hand, you very well could have a generations-long blood feud with them. And maybe, if you sided with the Danes, you could enhance your station and get a little strike back. If things went really well, your rivals might even die in battle, which would avoid the Ware Guild that you would have had to pay had you inevitably murdered them. I mean, this is Northumbria, after all so a noble murder was always just around the corner. Consequently, some of these nobles might have listened to the king's request and felt deeply ambivalent about it in the truest sense of the word, meaning that they might have felt both strongly for and against helping them out. But regardless, Alla and Osbert had to try. They had to get as many men to their side as they could. Effewich, now Jorvik, was simply too well-placed. From that position, the great heathen army would be able to conduct raids all throughout the kingdom with ease. And if the kings of Northumbria couldn't oust the Danes, how long would it be before the nobles switched sides? How long before Alla and Osbert ended their reigns with knives in their backs? So for Alla and Osbert, there was no middle ground here. The Danes would have to be expelled, or they would lose everything. But there's an area of imbalance between the two forces that's rarely discussed. Historians and enthusiasts are often eager to talk about the scale of the great army and how their forces were likely better trained and equipped than the Northumbrian Ferd that was already depleted from war exhaustion. But very few people spend the time to look into the motivations behind this period and the effect it would have had on morale. While Kings Alla and Osbert had to win this fight or die, the rest of their force didn't have that same urgency. In fact, if they played their hands right, some of those nobles might do quite well for themselves by switching sides. The cracks within Northumbrian society were probably even more prevalent now than they had been before, thanks to the strain that the great heathen army was placing on their system. The instability, the self-interest, the penchant for infighting, all of that was likely affecting the morale and unity of the Northumbrian host. The great heathen army, on the other hand, were all united with the same goal. And it was a very simple one. Survive. Most of them were far from home, and they were facing a force that was unlikely to grant any of them safe passage if they should lose the fight. These people worshipped the same god as the man who killed thousands of unarmed Saxons on a whim. What would these people do to an invading army that had just taken Effewich? Whatever personal grudges you might have with the other crews that had joined the great army, sheer necessity required that you put aside those grudges and fight for your very survival. 
there was no hope for surrender. For every Vikinger, this was a win-or-die situation. That would also go for just about everyone in the city. If there were any locals who stayed and worked for the Danes, or any Anglo-Saxons who decided to join the Danes in search of a better future, they were just as likely to meet a grisly end should the occupation of Jorvik fail. And don't you think that that sort of motivation would make them dig in a little harder than the Northumbrians who were plotting against them? And those Northumbrians were certainly plotting. As the Danes wintered in Jorvik and prepared, the kings of Northumbria planned. They met with eldermen, and they negotiated for their support in battle. Once spring came, and they had all the pieces in place, they marched on Jorvik. According to Simeon, their forces arrived at Jorvik on the Friday before Palm Sunday, March 21st, 867. You might be surprised that they would attack so close to a Christian holiday like Palm Sunday. Scholars also note that this attack was very early in the campaigning season. But the speed and timing of the attack might have all been part of the plan for the Northumbrians. Having only a few months to prepare, and arriving at a time of the year where the land was still cold, wet, dark, and unfavorable to marching, could have given them the element of surprise. Also, the great heathen army had already shown a familiarity with Christian customs. So perhaps the kings of Northumbria were hoping to take advantage of that, and strike them at a time when the Northmen would least expect it. Or, perhaps they were hoping to wrap their campaign in some of the magic of the approaching holiday. Whatever the plan was, it appeared to have worked. Kings Alla and Osbert had returned far quicker than expected, and with a massive host that seems to have taken the Danes by surprise. Imagine working in the fields outside of Jorvik, and a massive army appears marching towards the city, possibly forming into a gargantuan shield wall as they got closer. Think about the fear that you would have felt as you could hear the drumbeat that comes from warriors and shields clattering together in unison as they slowly approach your new home. I doubt that was the way that any of them had planned on spending their Friday. But here they were. Now something else to consider is that it takes time to get fully armed and armored. This surprise attack could have put the Danes on their back heel. They were no fools, of course, so they probably did have a small defensive force ready for something like this. And that force probably formed into a shield wall, potentially at the front of an opening within the walls of Jorvik. But against the combined forces of two kings, and who knows how many levies, how long could a small group of guards hope to hold out? Well, according to our sources, it wasn't long, and the defenses of the Northmen were shattered. From what records we have, they appear to have done little more than slow down the advancing Northumbrians. And I don't know if the Danes retreated into their walls and left the door open, or if the Northumbrian army immediately went to work tearing down the walls. It isn't clear. Our records are spotty, and there are only a few enigmatic reports of how the Northumbrians breached the defenses of Jorvik though exactly what those defenses looked like and how the Northumbrian army breached them isn't detailed. Whatever the case, though, the Northumbrian army wasn't able to immediately storm the city. It took them a little time to deal with the defensive force, and it also might have taken some time to tear down some walls. And the Danes knew what they were doing. Slowing down the advance had an advantage all on its own. 
Not only would it give the rest of the warriors within the city time to don their armor and ready their weapons, it would also give some of them time to leave the city through one of the other exits and circle around. We're told in the Chronicle that the Northumbrians, after a battle outside the town, broke in. So what we're probably looking at here is an army of northerners arranged into an impressive shield wall. And at their feet are the bodies of the small force of Scandinavians who are tasked with holding them off. What warriors that survived that first fight were now fleeing into the surrounding area. Or maybe they were running straight at the city of Jorvik, begging to be let in. Whatever it was, it would have been a shocking and terrifying thing to see from within the walls. But, from the perspective of the Northumbrians, many of which were untrained, this must have felt like a deliverance. Like divine retribution. God was clearly on their side. And bolstered by this victory, the Northumbrian host appears to have done what many untrained armies have done throughout history. They saw the enemy run, and they chased. They wanted to put that army down for good. Now, a natural consequence of pursuing the Danes into Jorvik would have been the breaking of the Northumbrian shield wall. As the warriors would have charged into an opening of the defenses of Jorvik, by necessity, they would have broken into open formation which was an offensive, but also really risky tactic. It would have stretched them out, and they would have been disorganized right as they burst into unfamiliar territory. And upon entering the city, the Northumbrian army was immediately ambushed. Our sources tell us that their forces were attacked on both sides of the walls. That means that there must have been Vikinger warbands within the walls, just waiting for the inevitable charge but also other warbands in hiding, waiting for the Northumbrians to break formation so that they could strike from the rear. The great heathen army had the Northumbrians encircled. There was no escape, and the Danes had positioned their forces and waited patiently for exactly the right moment to strike, specifically the moment where the shield wall would have had to be broken by the advance. And there was a reason why the shield wall was so popular in this era. It was really effective. And the Northumbrians had just lost theirs. They could reform it, but to do that in the middle of an ambush would require a tremendous amount of discipline and training, which was something that their forces probably lacked, thanks to the years of bloodletting that had occurred in their civil wars. Their forces were probably mostly teenagers and quickly trained. Kings Alla and Osbert could not have led their army into a worse position. And what followed was a bloodbath. In fact, the Chronicle, which is usually rather circumspect with these sorts of things, describes it as, quote, an immense slaughter of the Northumbrians, end quote. Kings Alla and Osbert fell in battle, as did eight other major Northumbrian eldermen. Now let me say that again so that the fans of Vikings and the Last Kingdom can hear it. The Chronicle, which is one of our best sources for this event, tells us that Kings Alla and Osbert were killed, quote, on the spot, end quote. There's no talk about a blood-red eagle. There's no discussion about a post-victory party where they execute kings. According to the Chronicle, Alla and Osbert died in battle, along, of course, with a sizable chunk of their army. And actually, there are no contemporary records of 9th century Scandinavians sacrificing captured princes and kings. 
All those stories that we hear about come from later writers who were clearly playing up the religious element of this and creating martyr stories. And those later writers did include a lot of martyr stories that focused on this period, but they appear to be simply that. Stories. Consequently, they don't really inform our understanding of the history of this period. All they really do is give us a sense of what thematic elements were preferred by the writers who were discussing the events generations later, usually hundreds of years later. And what they seemed to really like in that period were stories about how savage and ferocious the Northmen were. And as Professor Roberta Frank points out, the writers gave the people what they wanted. I know that's not as fun as having blood-red eagles, noseless nuns, and later East Anglian kings moonlighting as Viking pincushions. But facts are important, and Alla and Osbert fell in battle. After seeing their leaders fall, and who knows how many of their friends as well, we're told that the morale of the Northumbrian army collapsed. They were surrounded. Their leaders were dead. The streets were likely littered with the bodies of their friends and neighbors. And the Danes were probably quite capable of finishing the job if they wanted to. So we're told that the surviving Northumbrians made peace. Northumbria was shattered, and the old kingdom of Deira would now be ruled directly by the great heathen army. From their stronghold in York, which was rather far south within their new territory, they essentially had unrestricted access to the north and cut the northern territories off from any of their southern allies. In medieval war, much like retail, location is everything and Jorvik was an incredible location. Later sources tell us that they plundered their own kingdom, though I really do wonder how accurate that account is, since the Danes were clearly intending to hold the kingdom, and going hog-wild on your own lands? That's just stupid. It's the same principle that ensures that almost always the biggest drunken mess at a house party is a person who doesn't live there. I mean, even if you're a hot mess, you usually have a certain level of pragmatism while you're at your own home that keeps you from puking on the carpet and then just trying to hide it with a flannel shirt. I'm looking at you, Jabriel. But here's the interesting part. I had to clean that up. Actually, the interesting part is that Simeon tells us that the Danes would directly rule the old kingdom of Deira, and the old kingdom of Bernicia, so the lands beyond the Tyne, would be ruled by someone called Egbert who is now styling himself as King Egbert. And who the hell is King Egbert? Well, scholars pretty much roundly agree that he was a member of one of the rival royal families who were vying for control of Northumbria. But we don't know which one, or much else about him. We can guess that he was probably open to the idea of Scandinavian occupation, and given the zero-sum state of the economy that they were in, it's not hard to imagine why. Ultimately, this was probably a pretty good deal for him and his family, since it would have given him more stability than if he had seized the throne 20 years earlier. And by accepting the position, and by behaving well, he might be able to hold on to his station, rather than being turfed out of his lands, or just executed outright. Furthermore, Egbert seems to have been politically astute. Because reading between the lines of later records, it appears that he forged an alliance with Archbishop Wolf Hera of Effewich now Archbishop Wolf Hera of York. So the guy appears to have been at least rather smart. But here's something I keep pondering. Why him? 
Why would the Danes set him up in the puppet kingdom of Bernicia? Because let's be honest, it's pretty clearly a puppet kingdom. I mean, sure, it does seem to fit a pattern that was forming early on with a great heathen army, where they were looking at hegemonic domination rather than outright annexation. So having puppet kings does make sense. But why pick this guy as your puppet king? There were probably a whole variety of lower nobles who would have liked the opportunity. So what made Ekbert so special? That's something we'll probably never know. But it's a near certainty that Kings Alla and Osbert were seeking the support of the Northumbrian nobles prior to the attack. And when they were doing that, they would have been jointly devising a plan. Now, if I was King Ivor, or King Halfdan, or whoever else was leading this group, and someone came to me with advance warning of the attack, and gave me and my men sufficient time to plan an ambush, I might be tempted to reward them. It's pure speculation, but you do have to wonder what set King Egbert apart from the other nobles who would have really liked that role themselves. Whatever the case, we've now reached the end of one of the great kingdoms of the north. It was a kingdom that brought us Bede, Alcuin, and many of the intellectual luminaries of the time. It brought us kinslaying monarchs and gangster archbishops. It threw such intense monastic keggers that Alcuin believed that the Viking raids were divine retribution. This kingdom has been immensely entertaining. And I don't know if King Athelfrith knew that he was creating such a political and military powerhouse when he first united to Ira and Bernicia. But for centuries, Northumbria has been heavily influencing the story of Britain. And now, it was over. They were a powerful kingdom with an illustrious military past. And I wonder if they would have been able to withstand the great army if they weren't so fractured. If they had gotten it together, would we be talking about Edwin and the House of Northumbria instead of Alfred and the House of Wessex? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that they were terribly fractured. And they had been so for generations. And now their chickens had fully come home to roost. The great city of Ephowich had become Jorvik. The kingdom of Bernicia was under Danish rule through the puppet king Egbert. The Danes directly ruled the kingdom of Deira, and it wouldn't be long before everyone started calling it the kingdom of York. And with reports of individuals like Egbert and Archbishop Wolfhera, it appears there were collaborators living on both sides of the Tyne. In the span of about one year, the Danes had dramatically changed the political world of the North. But they weren't finished. This was only the beginning. And as the campaigning season of 867 approached its end, the gates of Jorvik opened, and the great heathen army marched forth once again. They were headed to Mercia. Mercia.